Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. This is my pleasure to welcome Jay Riola today. Hey Jay, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Benny Bonsu. I am the director of daily content for Olympics.com. Welcome Niall today. Niall from Move. Normal boring. Let's, let's remain fun at all times. I'm Mariana Gutierrez. I'm head of the Liga MX Femenil. I currently am the, the CEO and co-founder of a marketplace platform called Sports Tech Match. Here is my privilege to have a long-time friend in the industry, Jan Alessi. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, Jean-Baptiste, very well. The privilege is mine, believe me. Bavesh, <laughs> nice to have you here. Uh, great to be here with you, Sam. Usually we start a little bit with a bit of background from your, from your side. So just for, for the people, like you are the executive VP, so the vice president of uh, strategy and innovation at the uh, Orlando Magic, so the franchise within the NBA. Okay, so really starting to focus on the data. Now I, I, I start to see the pattern. So from the ticketing, you started to expand a bit more to or the vertical, or you took over a bit more the business strategy as a whole, applying potentially the same methodology in terms of understanding the customers, understanding the needs from the sponsors in terms of what you need in terms of delivery, potentially showcasing them data or what, what's the value for them in terms of being your partners and all the rest of the activities, I guess? Correct. I, my role, and in many ways, my, my department's role is to um, act as an internal agency in many respects, where we're, we're leveraging data and we're helping ticket sales or sponsorship um, or premium sales, you know, in our retention teams, um, uh, better understand their customers, uh, make make mm -hmm. better decisions, um, you know, use data to their advantage. Um, and so we really like, you know, kind of the fundamentals of, of the our business strategy and innovation team is data management, research, insights, business intelligence, uh, digital marketing and other marketing technology. Like we we run all of our data driven marketing areas. So our email, our website, our app, online paid advertising. But then we also, as a department, and this is this is kind of really became more of my focus in around 2018, was long-term strategic planning and innovation. And that's what I'm about to ask. It's like okay. this. I understand. I mean, if I can make a parallel, like back in the days, 2017 at UEFA, with the new presidents coming in, we started to have what we call the pompous world. But it was the intelligence center, and the idea was to say, okay new strategy and you need data and innovation at the core of it to actually enforce the long-term plan for 2020 until 2024 strategy and even beyond. Uh, so I was about to ask you, when does innovation kicks in or is it because it was more something back in 2017, 2018, where you had new tech, potentially even more startups coming up. And so there was a need as well in terms of leveraging the outside, so the external, while you, 
I love what you said in terms of be, being a, an internal consultancy. Uh, I saw myself as the UEFA Innovation Hub as an internal consultancy, helping the colleagues as well internally. Um, so I, I really like the parallel there in terms of like, you're not just leveraging the outside, it's how you transform the company from within, like really helping them, but how do you accompany them in terms of like cultural and mindset change from a pure medium to long-term. So that's why I was asking, I was wondering when does innovation kicks in and what does it change a little bit from the pure data-driven and, and support you can have from a pure business insights, data research perspective that you mentioned? Yeah, I think, um, so a couple of things that I would respond to with that. We, especially early on after 2010, we're very focused on operationalizing analytics and just, uh, you know, better pricing our tickets, better predicting customer behavior, season ticket member retention, uh, member acquisition, launching a CRM system and running our, our marketing and our sales campaigns more effectively. Uh, but what we also started to do was as we had built predictive models to predict customer behavior, we really started to understand um, what were some of the factors that were most important in determining whether a season ticket holder was going to renew? And I think where we started to, even when innovation wasn't part of my title or my, or wasn't oversight of it, we started to take insights from our commitment to data and analytics and understand how we could develop better products for our customers, better experiences for our customers. And I think that we were being inventive and innovative and trying to kind of modernize some of the more traditional and rigid ticketing products. And so you, if you haven't heard about our, our Magic Money program, we in 2014 um, started to allow our season ticket holders to return games that they were unable to attend back to us. And so instead of just telling them, hey, you can resell them, you can forward them to a friend or let them go unused, we knew that overall utilization was was the top behavioral predictor of whether they were going to renew their membership. Mm -hmm. So giving them a convenient way to give us the tickets back, convert the value of that ticket into a digital currency for them that they can use to customize their experience however they want. And so over the course of the season, we play 41 regular season home games. You can return 15 games, create a, a balance of magic money, which is the, the name we give to the currency, and then upgrade your seats, You know, bring a, a group of friends mm -hmm. to a game, pay for concessions or merchandise, and, and really flex your investment however you want. My name is Benny Bonsu. I am the director of daily content for Olympics.com. Also, what was important is that when I first started broadcasting, there wasn't many women like me in the sports industry, especially in the UK, and especially being a woman of color. Um, so that meant I didn't have a lot of mentors. I didn't have people that I could go to who could give me advice on what to do, what not to do. Um, but what I did have is that I had a lot of allies, you know, so someone like Andy Curran, who at the time was the managing director for Sky Sports in the UK, who would, you know, pull me aside and say, look, you've got incredible talent. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise, you know, keep going. You know, and he became almost like a father figure for me in sports. But I also realized that with the door opened for me, 
I have a responsibility to open it for others, especially women, and not just women of color, but women from all walks of life. So for me, you know, I think I was I won the leaders under 40 in 2019 because of the work that I've done across the board. Um, ever since I got my first opportunity at the BBC, you know, I'd always try and bring somebody else in or mentor another person. Um, and I've done that from my whole career. So that was really important for me. Once I got the um, leaders under 40, use that opportunity to educate more women, but also get more allies. And if you're going to change things, the allies has to be men, you know, because they are in the room. And if yep. I'm the only one in the room, it doesn't make sense. I need to get them as allies to get more of us in the room. So, you know, this, you know, the sports for a new era, great opportunity to actually train the next leaders within the industry, you know, pull them up, tell them what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, but also an opportunity for me to learn from the younger, um, younger people. They're not even young because I'm still young, but I'm learning from the younger, that, you know, what they're doing and what I also need to learn. Um, and for me, this is really, really important. So every time I get the opportunity, you know, I do go and mentor. I do share the knowledge. I also take the opportunity to, to learn. Um, yeah. And then what I learn, I also make sure I'm implementing within my team, within OCS um, and what we do, our Olympics.com. Because, you know, when I say this all the time, in coming into the industry the way I did, um, I got to this responsibility that I didn't ask for, but it's a responsibility I have to take seriously because as a woman of color within this position, there isn't many of us. So people yeah. look at you kind of, look, you are representing all of us. And unfortunately, unfortunately and unfortunate for me, yeah. you know, I was born in Africa. I was raised in the UK and then I do a lot in the US. So I have a whole group of people that yeah. are like, you're repping for us. So you need to, you need to make sure, you know, you're getting things right, but most importantly, you're shining the light on us. So for me, every time I get the opportunity to share the knowledge, learn, I'm going to be there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's transmission and that, that, that whole side of things where it's a moving industry, but a slow moving industry in terms of gender equality. Uh, but we'll get back to it a little bit later down the road, um, if that works for you. Um, and just in terms of your sport. So you spent a long time working for the NBA uh, in multiple ways. Uh, and you're also part of the board of directors of Basketball England. Did you just get attached to basketball in general? Or was it really where you were coming from and, <laughs> and where you wanted to work? Um, I, like I told you, I started doing sports at the age of 10. Um, yeah. By the age of 12, I was already part of our local sports, um, sports organization, Haringey Sports Development. Um, and then my my cousins and my my siblings, um, also heavily in basketball, got scholarships and go, went on to the States and, you know, even went on to play in the NBA. Um, when the NBA first came into the UK, you know, I was one of the first people they reached out to to help them build, you know, you know, where should we put our offices? Who do we need to be working with? You know, what do we do to activate within the UK? And, you know, they, they had the, um, they had uh, one of their team members actually come to my school <laughs> to meet me, to take me to lunch, to have this conversation. So that's where we all started, helping the MBA establish themselves in the UK. But also how do we then start telling the stories? Who should we be, we be working with? 
which media outlets should we be talking to? Who are the people that are active in basketball in the community? So yep. that's where we all kicked off. And I've always been part of it. So from NBA UK to NBA Europe to NBA Africa, you know, it's really helping grow the brand and talking about the brand and what they, they want to do and achieve. And Basketball England, it was a natural progression because when I was way younger and I was in education, um, the area in which I grew up in Tottenham, there wasn't many things for young people to do out of school hours. So I started a basketball club at the time called the Hawks Basketball Academy. And what it was is that the kids would come to, to me after school and I would coach myself, my younger brother at the time, sadly, who's passed away, Benson. We started this basketball club that allowed young people to come train also yep. learn leadership skills and also mentoring. Um, and we did that for many years. And I was one of those people that used to sit on the side and, you know, talk about the fact that the basketball England is not doing enough. <laughs> they need to do more, you know, and I was criticizing. And then, you know, the, the basketball players in London were like, Benny, you're the only person that can change things. Like, you need to join the board. And at yep. the time, I was like, I'm not joining the board. You're not doing this. They're not doing that. They're like, yeah, but you're telling us we can't do anything to change it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Flo Corner. This is my pleasure and privilege to welcome Niall today, Niall for Move. I um, was at an event at the old BBC in London where I saw a presentation from the Move AI CEO, Tino Miller, talking around the next generation use of AI to reconstruct the human body to be able to view it from any angle in a game engine. Um, and I thought at the time with my uh, TrackAb product hat on, I was like, we should partner with these guys. Like that's a, that's a, a good solution to that have. That would be a clever move. Yeah. And um, we, so I approached Tino and Anthony, uh, Anthony Ganju, our other co-founder, and I said, look, I think we've got all these leagues you're doing this visualization thing. If we plug our, you know, technology into your technology, we've got a really robust, potentially market-leading solution for this. And we explored it and explored it for a couple of months. And then Move went through, I think, its first angel round of investment. And I got a phone call from Anthony um, asking if I wanted a job. So um, I uh, left track. So you, you quit a bit the, the corporate big uh, data and big like service yeah. provider for a kind yeah. of a startup. Uh, yeah, for 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 a, for a couple of mavericks and a great idea at the time, um, and um, we uh, yeah, it was it would you know it's funny because like some people were like you're crazy. Other people went, if that tech works, that's like the next gen. And that's what I thought, right? When I saw the way that Tino and Ant had built the vision for the future of the business, I was like, it'd be remiss of me if someone working in this industry not to join the next generation of yeah. human movement extraction. Like I would be, I'd regret it forever if I didn't do that. So uh, I'm a bit biased board. here, but uh, I do agree. I mean, that's <laughs> but I'm it's, biased, it's, so I'm not saying anything. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those ones. I think it's what any moving from that sort of larger corporate to a startup is of like you know it can be frightening. But ultimately, like it's different. It's a different part of your life, right? That's the whole thing. It's not just a new job. 
It's a new challenge. It was an opportunity to go in as head of product and build the product from the ground up with the great tech team that were already in place. Um, but yeah, it was it was it was the middle of COVID as well, and um, mm-hmm. so yeah, starting a new job, strange then. And but yeah, anyway, joined officially moving. I think June twenty twenty, so almost three years ago now. Um, and initially, my remit was head of product. Um, to build the product um, from what was a great idea and a bunch of independent technologies into a cloud-deployed solution that we managed to patent along the way um, that we then um, have distributed along with a really good um, relationship that we've managed to garner with Electronic Arts. Um, We were introduced to EA quite early, um, in our journey at Move and the motion capture team at the Capture Lab in Vancouver really helped us um, <clears throat> hone the quality of the data for motion capture as opposed to uh, just collecting data skeletally is um, hugely important that you get really high quality data. And the EA yeah, team. Just let me let me pause on that, Niall, because I think I need to explain a little bit for the audience because we we know you know about what you're talking about. I yeah. tend to fake what I'm understanding, but that's part of my my job. Uh, so just to wrap up everything you said, like you were king in terms of event data, moved as a first leader in terms of tracking data, so all the coordinate, the X Y Z of all yeah. the the players and. Now you have this kind of next gen where you move to motion capture with volumetric yep. data. And uh, I think it's not something, I mean, even data people knows about it because it has been there for like more than 20 years now. And it's every time you have a, a penalty kick or a red card or anything, yeah. as soon as you have an event, there's something related to it. It was not enough for the people. I mean, at least for the sports performance guys, because Sometimes a player doesn't touch the ball for 88 minutes or for whatever, a very long period of time, but still by moving around, he's creating space or he's doing things that allows the play to get better or to, to break the lines uh, without touching the ball. So without having any kind of data yeah. or even. So this is where the tracking data came in, more context, more understanding. And now you have another layer. But the thing is for, I want because some of the audience don't know about this. Like, imagine I am three years old. How do you explain like motion capture? What is the, this 4D technology? Like, if you have to to explain it to your nephew or whomever. Yeah, I think like I mean, I'll, I'll take a little step back firstly. Anyway, I think into like the sort of football data side of things. Like, as you say, tracking data for a long time was actually a largely untapped resource in that spatio-temporal analysis. So, looking at patterns of play, looking at possession, you know, physicality statistics, things like mm-hmm. <clears throat> sprints are incredibly important to monitor like player load and health and me- things like injury prevention. Like, if you've got someone with high intensity sprints in there. Yeah. They're decelerating too quickly. They could potentially injure themselves more quickly. And uh, the richness of that data, I think, um, have evolved over time. And then, <clears throat> you know, the natural progression of going from center of mass, which is one data point on an individual per frame, which still outputs 3 million data points for a game across the whole game, um, was 
has been seen as not potentially rich enough compared to something like skeletal-based motion capture. Um, how to explain motion capture to a three-year-old? Is that the challenge? <laughs> or a six-year-old? I mean, <laughs> just to say, like, how do you capture the whole volumetric, I mean, the whole... 3D space and rendering of it compared to... I think it's like how to make Tony Stark Iron Man would be the easiest way to do it. Um, the uh, yeah, Ultimately, like, look, we use video to understand what human is, and then that human's movement can be added to AN environment scene character of your choice. So the way to explain it to a three-year-old would be like, do a dance... Give me two minutes, and we'll make you Tony Stark. That's the uh, that's the uh, the way of looking at it. But um, the the way the tech works, in essence, is that um, on the move side, we use a number of video angles looking at a human being, and we use AI um, to look at what is called pose estimation, which is basically the human body's movements <clears throat> based on their joints or their bones. And what we patented is a methodology by which to process that data. So we run that um, pose data through a series of biomechanical um, models that apply things like constraints to your joints because um, your body bends, extends, and flexes in a certain way. Um, kinematic rules around that. And we also apply physics to that as well so that the laws of gravity are applied to the human movement. And what that gives us is a resulting file or stream that can be utilized to power um, all sorts of use cases, whether it's um, things like um, character animation for video games, yeah. whether it's, um, you know, statistics for insights, um, whether it's, you know, almost like skeletal analysis for things like uh, joint rotations, flexions and extension. Uh, ultimately, we output a really high fidelity motion capture output. I'm Mariana Gutierrez. I'm head of the Liga MX Femenil. That means that this is the Women's Professional Football League in Mexico. So when you moved to the league, the idea was to say, okay, if we the league was uh, had the intention to to create the uh, the female competition, and so they recruited you so that. You had the full, I would not say blank page, but the full support to actually launch a new competition on the female on the female side. Exactly. That's a very interesting question, um, and it would give us a, a great context. Um, it, if I had to describe what actually happened, is like corporate entrepreneurship, right? Um, it's been male dominant historically. We have a lot. Our core business was developing men's competitions, right? Um, so when I joined the member association, uh, uh, FMF, how, that's how we say it here, mm -hmm. um, I had, uh, an entrepreneurship past, um, developing women's competition, amateur. Huh? And when they asked me to join, they already had this strategy, this vision, this purpose driven of developing women's football in our country. And the first step was let's let's develop the base, you no, know, the grassroots. Let's start grassroots. Um, with yeah. amateur leagues because um, we need to make it visible 
the Mexican Federation used to say in that moment that um, we were on, on uh, in a high depth with our women's sports or women's game. And so I joined um, first developing the grassroots. And later on, um, one year and a half later, I joined the league because in that period, we also were doing the research of how should we create and launch this professional league. Okay. It was a lot of research uh, time, a lot of um, lobbying with the stakeholders, how we should plan this, how, which is our audience, our customers, our fan base, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I have a few questions on that because I think it's, uh, I have two, but let's take the first one is, it's usually a chicken and egg. It's, is it, did you do the, the competition to actually try to drive revenues and showcase that? There is a business case there so that also you can have revenues to then cascade down to the grassroots or, you know, you had the strong political will, but what was the the idea of the league? It was to say more than the grassroots, we need also a flagship event for communication to make sure like all the girls and all the, let's say the fans, whether male or female, can actually watch female football uh, and have a business case. But what was, was the competition? I don't know how to say that, but we had the same discussions back in the days as well at Wi-Fi. So it was on the chicken and egg, like the competition was some kind of a flagship to help on the grassroots, or it was more the grassroots that really helped in terms of maturing the market and then go with the competition. You explain yourself perfectly. And I would say it's an excellent question because we have to say that women have been, women and girls have been playing football a long time. It's not that massive as in the men's side because we all know why, no? That we didn't have the space and the proper um, um, competitions where we could held it. And obviously the cultural part, no? Um, so um, we understood that uh, representation matters, viewership matters, matters. Um, this showcase that you're talking about, um, it was important mm. because in parallel, we had a very strong national team um, development no, pathway. They've been, and curiously, and I would say it's not a funny thing to say, but it's curious that since we launched the league, we've not qualified to a World Cup. We didn't qualify to... to um, France and we didn't qualify to Australia. Mm. So, um, competitions. Exactly. We launched the competition and uh, we started finding a lot of issues we had of how we had built that pathway because we didn't have a competition, right? Um, so we had very good players here that didn't fit in the amateur level now, no? So we had to do a competition mm. for those players that a professional, exactly. okay. In terms of pathway, it was more like the elite transition and more the professional side of exactly. things. Yeah. Okay, I understand. We did lack of that pathway for the whole pool of players, right? Mm. That became our biggest challenge. Um, and we can see it till, day, uh, till now that um, uh, we don't have players that have been involved in the elite um, system 
from a young age, right? The girls' academies, it's 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 been we've launched our youth competition, but that was our biggest challenge. Who were gonna be the players? We had the stakeholders, we had the broadcasters, we had the political willing, as you were saying, but how we were going to select those players, who were the ones that play, mm-hmm. who draft for their clubs, etc. etc. Hello, everyone. Welcome back for another episode of Le Corner International. Very happy to welcome Harry Brown today. The, rather than looking for the biggest check in media at the moment, really what we're trying to do is to find broadcast partners who, who really believe in, in the long-term potential of Formula E will put us on their core channels to, to expose us to as, as large an audience as we can. And that's obviously really vital for us to build a fan base, but it's also really vital for us to support our teams and manufacturers who, who invest in, in participating in Formula E and our sponsors as well, who, who are obviously uh, paid to, to make sure that their association with Formula E is, is shown to as many people as possible and, and the storytelling around that. Um, in terms of where the audience comes from, much of the audience is, is as you'd expect, in core motorsports markets, UK, Germany, France, Italy, um, US, China as well, increasingly. Um, but then also what we find is when we go racing in um, in the likes of Indonesia or, or Brazil or, or even Cape Town for the first time this year as well, we find that we can build, we can create um, really great broadcast relationships off the back of those pinnacle races, which means and, and bring a lot of audience to all of the races across the season off the back of those broadcast relationships that we've built. So last year when we went to Jakarta for the first time, we found that Indonesia became one of our, our biggest broadcast markets in terms of audience, really as a result of, of, the, of the fact the fans really brought, bought into the product that was bringing tier one racing to their country for the first time on, on four wheels. They're, they're big, they have a big uh, motorcycling heritage there as well. Um, and and that meant that off the back of the strength of that broadcast relationship, we we're able to to really grow the uh, grow our fan base in Indonesia, and that was a great success story. So it's, it's a bit of a combination of, of those core yeah. markets where, where you'd, you'd see it traditionally, and, and then growth markets where we are starting to make a bigger splash as well. Got it. And just overall, in terms of the was the the the, the percentage of the media rights piece in the whole overall finance finances of uh, of Formula E, like what? you know what percentage does it represent in the overall um formula e organization it, it's a single digit percentage at the moment uh, you know our our main revenue streams i mentioned are uh, absolutely sponsorship um yeah. and then uh, we also uh, take um another significant revenue stream is from governments and, and local promoters who will uh work with us to, to take the racing to their country as well and, and so that's the, the kind of second biggest category Okay, interesting, and it shows that the, the the organization is healthy because it's not too it's not dependent on media rights. Obviously, there are other um, uh, investments coming from different places, but but I'm assuming there's still a challenge to grow that revenue on the media rights side of things. Ah, oh, absolutely, and and you know we if you look at any tier one sport, and th- that's our ambition to become a tier one sport. Um, a big part of the pie is always coming from from media rights, and and we know that's where we want to get to. Yeah. The, you know, what are the factors in in in, in whether you can get a, a large check from a media company? You need to have that fan base that, that's willing to to watch to fund the ad ad model or or to subscribe to to watch to to get the subscription revenue. And you know, yeah. we 
our priority is really to make sure that we have a fan base that's big enough that that we can start to dictate those kinds of fees. At the moment, as I say, the strategy is all about growing that fan base. And, and for that, we, we want to work with broadcast partners who will give us great production, promote us and put our product in, in a really prominent place on their on their platforms. I used a lot of P's there for some reason, but <laughs> maybe that'll help. Yep. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming David Fowler. Yep, you're not a real entrepreneur until you have to do your first bunch of layoffs and understand the, <laughs> the complexities behind it. And uh, it, is, it, is, it is a tough exercise. Yeah. Um, have, you just, huh? <laughs> have you been there? Unfortunately, I have, yeah. Unfortunately, oh, I have. It's not a fun yeah. exercise. It's um, good, yeah. Um, but it, not, nice. And so, like, taking one step. So, you go to FIFA, you, you go from FIFA to Mike Kuju. So now your entrepreneurial journey. So tell us more about Sports Tech Match. What are you looking to solve? Why did you actually go in that entrepreneurial journey, having just stated how complex and hard it might be uh, along the way? So tell us more about the whole project. Yeah, yeah, great. So it's, um, I, I, I guess I mentioned previously, like the excitement, but also the frustration of being on the receiving end of, of many inquiries while at FIFA from from sports tech companies as, as the whole ecosystem was growing fast. And uh, having been through the, the MyKuju project, I experienced the frustrations of um, trying to, uh, you know, play a role in growing a, a business from a sales and marketing perspective um, and, and the long procurement cycles that we faced, the, the, the frankly quite poorly managed RFP processes that, that we were part of. Um, I think one of the, one of the common experiences that I'm sure resonates with many tech companies out there um, is that, you know, you read in the sports industry media that, that somebody has won a tender um, and you, you never were made aware of the tender at all. So you never had a chance to participate in it. And it's, it's hugely frustrating when you believe so strongly in the product you're building and, and the people around you and, and, and you believe that your capabilities are well matched to the requirements of, of the, of the, let's say the buyer um, in, in any case. So that, that, that's really both sides of the, of the, of the sort of divide, if you like. And I felt there must be a better way to um, bring these two sides together to solve some of these challenges. Uh, so I think what, what, what we're building is a procurement platform for the buyer side. So we're, we're, we've built um, the first tools that will help buyers to, evaluate the the growing number of of sports tech vendors that are in the market um, to do so anonymously so one of our key usps as we again going back to the sort of risk of of spamming and the risk of cold calling we enable um rights holders and, and, and their their um their agencies to effectively engage the market anonymously find the best um the best uh, vendors for their for their requirements um do the filtering um, very quickly in a very lean way. So it's a sort of the first product we built was a pre-RFP product, simple RFI product. And then on the on the vendor side, we're building a, a kind of sales and marketing hub, if you like. So we, we're building more and more tools that will help vendors to position themselves for growth, to win business. So for example, we're about to deploy the first ratings and reviews tool um, for the sports industry. We've had a successful pilot program um, where we uh, worked with about 15 to 20 vendors who invited customers to review their uh, specific products within their, their, their product portfolio. 
uh, we learned a lot. Um, we we learned that we we, we actually learned that, that it may be possible to implement something like this in the sports industry, um, which was a huge um, a huge uh, concern we had when we started. Obviously, as you know, no guarantees that that going from a sort of pilot into a full blown kind of MVP deployment. There's no guarantees the MVP is going to work, and there's there's some differences between the dynamics of running a sort of pilot and, and then then transferring that into an MVP, of course. But that's the life, and that's the chance you take, the risk you take. So no, I was super excited. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's the summary. Really, a procurement platform for buyer side and a sales and marketing um, platform for the for the vendor side, and, and ultimately our, our our ambition is to. To scale up um, across the sports tech um, industry, and, and and actually with the tools we build, we, we feel that if we get it right, there's there's a, a universality there that, that those tools will also be applicable for non-sport categories. So um, the ambition is, was always to 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 look at look beyond sports tech, and what that means we we haven't haven't yet <laughs> figured out because we. We have to be very, very cautious and honest that we're still at the start. We, we've yeah. just, you know, we've just proven, um, we've just collected certain proof points. We've built a small community. Um, we're not, we don't have a, I wouldn't say we have a full sort of, you know, clear product market fit yet. Yeah. Um, but we do know we're creating value. We do know we're creating connections on a, on a, on a in a manner which is 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 scalable, infinitely scalable. Um, but still, we yeah a lot of refining, a lot of work to be done to, to get the first phase set up and, and and start you know investing for growth. So we're not quite at that growth stage yet. Yeah, interesting. And so there there are two elements that come to my mind. So the centralization of RFPs. There's definitely an element where everybody wants to be made aware of the RFPs where they can potentially answer. But like to 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 mention one of the processes I've been in recently was for a platform for a league who was launching its OTT platform. They actually tried to open it up as much as possible to, to as many um, companies. 27 companies actually answered the RFP. Yeah. And so I'm thinking the need on the tech side of things is super important, but how are you going to make it, the platform relevant for um, those organizations to actually have more value than just reaching out to people? Because maybe an assumption is, at least on my side, that these organizations are narrowing down before launching an RFP, the people they want to talk to, they're, they might be missing out on a few, but do they really care because they, you know, nobody's going to be able to judge them inside their organization for not looking at the potential best vendor? That's a good point. So, yeah, tell us a bit more about... That's a really good point, Samuel, because I, I guess in the end, it all comes down to sort of human psychology and more basic things, right? So... Um, and, and that that's why the first product we developed was an RFI product. So it's a super streamlined pre-RFP filtering tool. So those 27 would, would come through a, a more streamlined RFI, can be evaluated very quickly, and then give, give the buyer the confidence that when they invite a number of those people to, the, to, to a closed process, for example, at yeah. least there's been, a, there's been a higher level filtering um, of of all possible all possible uh, vendors who, who who could could deliver could deliver to the, the the requirements. So that that is certainly um is certainly something that we don't necessarily wouldn't necessarily um, disagree with that that open RFPs are not always the best way to go. Hence why we would 
encourage buyers to actually filter the market in a more streamlined way if they if they do believe that it's counterproductive to you know to go out with a, a public RFP for that reason because it can be a huge burden like twenty seven responses having been having run many RFP processes at, processes at FIFA having you know five or six responses is a huge burden given normally these RFP documents are quite heavy yeah um, and the responses are quite heavy and and you've got multiple rounds and it's it's uh, but the, this is all the, the the these types of processes we still find and heat listening to buyers there are very few tools to support people so the processes are, are either run by if you're lucky a central procurement team um and if you're not you take it on yourself as as part of a business unit who, who has a need here is my privilege to have a long-time friend in the industry, Jan, Jan Alessi. The person who was working in our team, Marcos Pellegrin, who's now the director of La Liga in, in, in South Africa, he came up with the idea of, of World Football Summit and he said, hey, listen, La Liga has these strong objectives and, and, uh, and, and they want to internationalize themselves. Tebas at the time was really started to, to talk about football not as a sports, but as an industry. So we put two and two together and said, hey, there might be a space there. So we started talking to different people. It was very tough because we didn't have a single contact in the football industry. And uh, and and obviously, well, yeah, you know, I, I have to admit, yeah, I mean, that I mean, for the for the audience, that rings a bell for me with the football innovation forum. I mean, from the story you are describing, it's a bit the same. Is you see a need, or you hear a need from a right holder or from from a person working directly inside that business, but maybe missing some kind of operational skills or capacity to deliver or to put that together. Willing to uh, promote it, to invest in it, but cannot deliver it, and then you are kind of the right arm managing to say, okay, we can pull this out together based on your needs yeah. to best serve your your objectives. So, so it's well, quite, now, now quite it's a little bit easier because now we have a name, no? But you can imagine when we came up with the idea in 2000. How was it like in, in 2000, the first one, like the, the first event was like when you compare 23 to 2016, I mean, 2023, 2016, it's like nothing comparable. Nothing uh, comparable. No, not at all. I mean... It was an entrepreneurial project, no? So actually, we we had a great idea, um, but you know, ideas are worthless, no? And 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 financing an event is very very tough. And and we we had never done. We were we were experts organizing events, but had never organized such a big event. Um, so we were actually trying to get you know budgets from different communications company and it was impossible to organize it with those budgets at the end we had someone in-house who managed to do the event for very little money no uh so actually the budget of the first edition of war football summit has nothing to do with the budget that we have today which is a lot larger Mm -hmm. but we we had it was we had to take a bet no and two months before that first edition we weren't sure whether we would make it or not, no? And at the end, we actually managed to break even in that first edition. Um, but like 90% of the attendees were Spanish, were local. Now it's 60% or close to 60% are international. 
Uh, we have many mm. more opportunities than before. Um, so, so yeah, it was it was a big challenge. Uh, but you know, we we knew that if we did a first edition, and that it looked successful, and that the people that participated, uh, then we could build on that success, and 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 each edition would become bigger and bigger, which is which is what happened, and which which is what normally happens uh, with with any sorts of a bet, no. Uh, so you need you need to start small. I mean, for any kind of project, you cannot go like except if you have a big investment or a big financial uh, tech where you yeah. can think big to a certain extent. Otherwise, you always start even for a project. You you need to start to a uh, small. You test it whether it's a crash test and there whether it works or not, and then you build on it and then you expand. And if there is some kind of satisfaction or first ROI, then it goes. Uh, just sidetracking a little bit because on the business side of things, and I know the event industry is quite tough. And you you mentioned as well the the PR or the uh, the publishing one, which has been also having quite a hard time. What's your view on not necessarily like uh, giving the numbers on World Football Summit, but the uh, the idea of being profitable or break even? It's like it's it feels like going also to to these events. It's always harder. I mean. It's try to. It's hard also to to get the ROI for everybody involved because you have people paying for it for their brand exposure. You have potentially, I know, startups coming in that wants to leverage it or other kind of agencies or, or sponsors. But what's the evolution you've seen a bit in the event industry, and how how can you really make it profitable? Because one of your points, I'm I'm alluding to, is the one where you said it's tough to be break even. And I know the event industry is a is a very tough game, so mm-hmm. I would like to to hear it from you because that's actually the the core of your business. Yeah, I mean it's uh, there are many many challenges. No, when when setting up uh, uh, an event and obviously making it commercially viable is 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 probably the the biggest of of of, of challenge. No, it costs a lot to organize a, such an event. No, and and securing enough re- revenue no to to be able to celebrate it um obviously now we have a very strong mm. and long track record so many of our our partners they 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 partner with with us not not only for the event but throughout the year no uh, through all of the events that we've celebrated we've managed to you know build a platform which where we try and service the industry 365 days a year now and and uh, mm-hmm. and and we've done events in Africa in Asia uh, in Europe hopefully soon in America so many of our and, and you know football and sports is is a very global industry so the yeah. fact that we have such an international database allows us to um, to to offer services now and to generate revenue throughout the year and not only just for the event, no, which... Yeah, it's not just a one-off. Then no. it's a 360, I mean, it's a 365 days connection, uh, yeah. networking possibility and getting to know the, yeah. the key people. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we have a weekly newsletter, which before we only promoted our event, no, and what we were doing. And now instead, you know, we're, we have interviews. Now we've, we've recently set up also a podcast. Bavesh, nice to have you here. 
how different is it is it and how similar is it working for an international league in the US and an international broadcaster based out of uh, the Middle East? I think they're they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, I think they both have uh, a mission towards serving fans globally. Uh, one's more on the creating of the IP and creating of the thing that drives the fandom, and the other is about delivering it and bringing it and communicating and giving a fans a way to experience it in a shared way. Um, but both look at it in the same way in terms of there's a global fan base, there's a global opportunity. And how do you localize that? How do you create that connection? How do you create those story touch points so that people can get really, really passionate about it and become even more and more engaged as they become um, casual fans, the hardcore fans and everything in between? Yeah. And how, so I, I'm assuming it's quite useful knowing both sides of the both sides of the the picture because you have actually all the challenges that you were meeting at the NBA and how you were packaging everything. And now from the other side, on the receiving end, acquiring the content, I'm assuming there are a lot of things that um, um, you have a bit of interesting background to be able to, uh, to 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 judge the content you're receiving and the experiences you want to deliver. Yeah, look, I think. Both the property side and the broadcasters form really, really collaborative creative partnerships. And in that, they're able to serve the fan authentically and truly. It's not about one side upping the other. There, there'll always be a commercial reckoning every few years to make sure things are fair and equitable for both sides. But you have to think about it as a collaboration and a partnership. And that, when you look at that and you appeal Uh, the onion and go in a little deeper, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is serve the fan and create um, real experiences for them to connect with, create real opportunities for them to engage and go deeper in a way that touches them and makes them feel really, really excited about being part of this global phenomenon in whatever sport that is. And that's the beauty of it these days. I think it used to be the big three or four sports. Now it's become dozens and dozens of places that you can really lean in as a fan. And I think we do that uniquely as a broadcaster, but I think the same way the NBA is monitoring what's happening with all these other sports and always looking to reinvent, innovate, and stay ahead so that it doesn't become one day, hey, yeah, it's on its decline and people aren't watching as much to more. How do I stay relevant? How do I refresh? You're even seeing how they're introducing the mid-season tournament. <clears throat> as a way to create natural touch points in the middle of a very long 40, 42 week season yep. as a way to create that touch point. And I think that's what broadcasters are trying to do when they have halftime shows and when they have instant game highlights, they're creating touch points that allow you to be engaged and not have to wait. Uh, we're past that point of you could commit three or four days or five days to a test match in cricket and pass time. Uh, yep. People are going second to second. And I think that both the properties and the broadcasters are adapting to that. But that's an interesting one, right? Because naturally you would say, okay, <laughs> whether you're the NBA, for example, and let's take the example of being sports, naturally you should be looking after the interest of the basketball fan, making sure that they get the best content. But there's also the element of the NBA breaking up their rights in multiple ways. There's the approach of what's happening on NBA plus what's happening on the right holder side, what's happening on social media to make sure that there's an, as much eyeballs as possible on the content. Is it, are you, with your experience, are you seeing leagues and broadcasters actually work more and more closely? That would be the natural sense of the story, especially now that sport is more competing with other sides of the ent of entertainment overall, but are they collaborating? Are broadcasters and leagues collaborating? 
Absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, the television production is a full collaboration. Every broadcaster that's a host broadcaster is doing that with the property. That's not, here's a check and come in and do what you want inside of the arena. That's a co-production in the fullest sense. So we're already partners very closely. But when you think of all the other extensions, uh, certainly for us, we operate the NBA website in France and in the Middle East in, in Arabic, and we are the home. When you come to the NBA.com, we are the home as the broadcaster. We are providing all of that coverage that we do during the live game. It's our journalists, it's our talent creating those stories and those extensions outside the game and behind the game and before the game. And that is that natural extension of the partnership. I've seen plenty of other properties do this. It's, it's by no means an exception. It takes more effort. It's certainly a lot more commitment. But I think the commitment is back to that cause. We're trying to create real fandom and opportunities to create deeper connections. We're not just exhibitors of something that we've rented. Yeah. yeah. So basically, beyond the negotiation phase, actually, then the organizations work hand in hand during the, 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 the length of the cycle because there's no other way around it than, um, than actually working together to make it successful on both ends. Look, I think there's always going to be an evolution and the leagues have within and the properties have within their sort of self, um, you know, future growth interest. Uh, important to always keep all options open and important to make sure all avenues are fully, fully commercially exploited. And so you'll see them do things to create digital only packages or things that would entice a digital native to come in and challenge the table a little bit. But it's by no means in a way to just opportunistically do something. It's more about making sure all avenues of fandom are fully exploited. Yeah. If, if all they ever did is offer a free-to-air broadcast package, would you ever see a streaming package? Likely not, because the free-to-air broadcasters have no reason to. But yeah. as they've really opened it up and said, we actually don't care how you stream it or how you broadcast it or how you deliver free-to-air. What we care is that you exhibit it and that we care is how you make it the most interactive that it can be how you make it the most engaging that you can be. And then you look at Thursday Night Football on Amazon and all of their production efforts are very much similar to what any of the others, Fox, CBS, NBC do, but in their own unique way where they have X-Ray and they have other things that they're doing to just take advantage of that interactive experience that is uniquely possible through streaming. But I think that it's not because it's dictated to be a certain way. It's more about Let's make sure that we can maximize the exhibition of the games in any way possible so that the fans can truly experience it as if they're sitting there in the arena, which is really the epitome of it all, right? As you move up the ladder from a lean back experience to a lean in, you want that person to feel like they're standing right there in the arena and standing and cheering on their team. This is my pleasure today to welcome Michael, who is kind of the equivalent of FIFA. And so you're managing the members just like there are federations. There are also unions protecting the players and you're working with them like just in the three years like based on your experience it's what what kind of challenges you've encountered uh, along your journey like maybe in the first 18 months when it was a bit everything or widespread in terms of topics but even in the last 18 months when it was a bit more focused on topical issues that are driving the game Yeah, there's always new challenges every week. Um, I guess for the listeners that don't know, FIFPRO basically is working to represent the voice of professional players and kind of ensure that players themselves are represented in decision-making, which can impact their environment and their industry, for example, in discussions with FIFA, like you said. 
Uh, we don't always achieve it, but that's what we're trying to do. I guess what I tell people, if you tell people you work at FIFRA, a lot of people mm. outside the industry, their common response you'd receive is, oh, what, those players are all multimillionaires. Why would they need a union or why do they need a union? Uh, well, in reality, it's that top, I don't know, a couple of thousands that are making that kind of very high salaries and that kind of life-changing money, whereas I think we represent over 60,000. Yeah, 99% are, are not these players. Yeah, we represent over 60,000 professional players and the vast majority of them worldwide uh, are earning a normal, stable wage, I guess, or maybe an unstable wage, but they're earning normal kind of salaries or even less than normal, what we would consider normal. So there's a lot of problems which then arise uh, across def- different regions of the world, uh, depending on, I guess, the social environment in those countries, the legal environment, and the culture, different things like that. So sometimes that can also make adopting general policy quite difficult. For example, take the player workload issue. It's obviously on the player of the big leagues that everyone would be familiar with, where men's workload or men, player workload in men's football is quite a big issue because they're playing too many games the top players are playing internationals club games just constantly not getting enough rest but then you have other smaller developing leagues who actually probably want to play more games so underload is an issue there because they want greater opportunities to improve their contracts or their careers or just more exposure so they actually want to play more more football so I think it's an example of then sometimes it's very hard to create a global policy as such because you have certain mm. regions and certain markets on the one hand, which have an overload problem and then some have an underload problem. So that could be a challenge then sometimes devising the policies which could be flexible enough to address the concerns of players in the different types of markets. Yeah, and I, and I guess as well when it comes to the workload, it's also because you have different bodies having the different competitions. So looking at Europe, you have the, the Euro with for the national teams with UEFA or the Champions League, but at the same time you have the the national ones uh, with the Premier League or the League One or the EFL to so the Bundesliga. So I guess you also have, for the unions, it's also, you have to, I don't know if it's lobbying, but you have to discuss with plenty of different stakeholders with their own views for their own competitions. And that might be also a challenge to navigate uh, from your end too. Yeah, exactly. I think the football market is very unique and it's so fragmented in, in the sports world. I think you look at, for example, in comparison to some of the American sports where collective bargaining is more enshrined and you have one league, say like the NFL, and then you have one player union like the NFLPA and they'll frequently mm-hmm. argue and they'll frequently negotiate to try and get the best deal for each, each other or for themselves. But at the end of the day, it's one party negotiating with one party uh, doesn't have that fragmentation. Whereas you say in football, there's a host of different competition organizers from say, domestic leagues to continental bodies and to world bodies in international football. So there's a lot of different competitions, which then means a lot of different negotiation partners. And that's a large part of the reason why the calendar has been such a difficult thing to solve or difficult issue to solve because I guess every organization or every party is kind of looking after their own interests uh, and there hasn't been a solution reached that we would say for the welfare mm. of the players because of that. On, on that, Michael, I was thinking like CBAs so or collective bargaining agreements have always been 
I mean, from our European lens, we've always looked at it as a potential solution, saying like, uh, this could be the way forward because North American leagues are doing it and they are doing it well. But do you think, I mean, I don't know if, I mean, from your own personal views, like to which extent we can replicate that kind of collective bargaining agreement? Is that something, I would not say feasible, but is it something we need to be inspired from? But do we need to tweak it? And if we need to tweak it, to which extent do we need to adapt it to our own situation in Europe? Because I think it's the way it works in the US is great. Business first. Uh, and as you said, like one party against one party, you know, like you can go on strike, you get the best deal out of it, but you know afterwards that it's done and you're going to work as a professional athlete in the league and uh, you're going to give like 200% until the next uh, collective bargaining agreement, new negotiation. But I don't know to which extent it is realistically plausible in Europe. Yeah, I think on a domestic level, it's quite, it's relatively easy to implement if the will is there to do so from the governing bodies, from the powers that be. The, For example, take a country that we have already in say, I don't know, we might just pick a specific example, but some countries actually do it quite well already. Australia, for example, we have an Australian union and they negotiate directly with the Australian League mm. and they have a CBA between them and they kind of work it out like that, kind of similar a bit to the American model like you were talking about. So I think at that domestic level, it's definitely possible. It's something we're striving or our unions are striving to do. Some of them have varying levels or it's a complete CBA or collective bargaining agreement, as we'd phrase it, or if it's a bit less uh, comprehensive, maybe like a memorandum of understanding or kind of in between agreements that set out the broad terms or parameters that I've got to full CBA negotiation discussions. Uh, so I think it's definitely possible at domestic level. And as you say, once you get into that continental or global level, uh, it becomes a bit more tricky as there's more parties and more fragmented, a more fragmented environment. But I still think it's possible. I think the players have never really been given a full say or a full voice in the collective decision-making. Um, and I think that's something that if the, if the will was there, for organizations to integrate the players properly into that, it could be done. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming Ivan. Ahead for us, it's a lot longer. Like we have a lot of runway left to to cover. Um, but I feel like we are working on a blank sheet of paper sometimes. Yeah. We're really able to do whatever we want and whatever we feel we're doing. And I think that's not only on digital, it's also, it's also for marketing, through innovation programs, through, for example, putting uh, cameras on referees and players during live games, right? Not, no other basketball league in the world is doing that. We're doing it. We're, we've yeah. done mic'd up in the past. Now we're doing actual cameras to see a brand new first person view of what it is to be a referee, what it is to be a player. That can be integrated to broadcast. It can be integrated to OTT. It can be integrated to our social media channels. It's an amazing piece of content to elevate the positioning of the league. But to answer your question, there's there's a lot more we can do. One one thing that is really focusing uh, my attention over the next three years, at least for the roadmap, is one, personalization. Be able to offer a personalized experience on our digital products or fans. For that, we need to know your information. For example, like I said, favorite club and favorite players and be able to re really personalize your home homepage experience and uh, your communication 
with us, and that's key. And the second thing is gamification. We know the power of gamification. We saw it ourselves by building a brand new strategy. Now we need to expand on that. We need to build a gaming hub. We need to build more gaming products that can be offering more incentives to you as a fan to be part of this fandom, right? And we need to build the capabilities on a commercial level. We know, and I, I speak from experience, especially with Gen Z, that the, um, the attention span of our next fans are extremely low. And we need to be in a position to protect this league and this product where we need people to continue watching all the games of the EuroLeague. They will do so naturally because our games are so competitive that you don't know who's going to end up winning the game, right? So that's, that's an amazing piece for us, and that's super important. But we need to ensure that that next generation of fans are coming up and growing very rapidly. We need to be aware of that. Every day they get older. Uh, we need to be able to convince them and to be attracted to the EuroLeague. We need to offer innovative tools, whether it's a brand new way of consuming the product through referee camps, player camps, that's one way, but be able to keep them engaged. And that's gamification for me. Gamification is the way for me to maintain a valid, growing Gen Z generation of fans and be able then to convert them into loyal EuroLeague fans who will go to the games, who will support players, who will support clubs, and who will also experience the biggest event of the EuroLeague, which is a Final Four event as well. Well, it's definitely great to hear somebody talk about the importance of gamification from our position as an agency, really focused on that fan engagement layer element. And we're going to get back to it, but on that centralized approach uh, of a league with the clubs. Um, that, but, but we'll touch base on that a little bit later. But it is one thing where those gamification element, and you were talking about meta. And I remember in a podcast hearing Peter Hutton say how extensively more engaged and how extensively longer the session lengths were when there were gamification and social elements alongside a piece of content. Like uh, most organizations have no clue about it, would, and but would have their jaws dropped if they actually saw the numbers behind it. So it's great to hear that you exactly. have gone through that process and beyond the Fantasy League because Fantasy League is, feels like a quick win that yeah. is built as a standalone that people get can get to. But it's actually for a relatively niche audience compared to the global engagement you want to get uh, for your global fans. So it's super interesting to hear you uh, talk about all those elements. But just one last final question on the building blocks, right, that we have been going through so far. What what are maybe the challenges that you didn't know you were going to face a few years back when you took took upon this role and started uh, building or adapting to different platforms? Um, yeah, tell tell us about some of the things that uh, some of the complexities that have come come up along the way before we get back to monetization and 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 the centralized approach. That's an amazing question uh, and a question that I, I feel we sometimes overlook uh, a little bit. Uh, but the truth is working on a, on a digital transformation process with over six different vendors across the board can be very complicated, right? Because you're working with external vendors who some of them know basketball and some of them do not know basketball, but some of them and few of them don't know what the EuroLeague is in many ways, right? So yep. it's for me, the number one challenge is understanding of a product, understanding of the game. If you don't understand that, it's very hard to build a, a digital strategy and infrastructure that will fit our needs in the long term. So that's number one, right? So it's really the education and showing to our vendors our vision and be able to have a commitment from them and their team knowledge to be able to build that with us. That's really important. The second point, the second challenge, I think it's a challenge that we all face uh, in today's um, 
sports world, it's, uh, of course, the, the financial commitments uh, to build a digital strategy and yep. commitment. Uh, that's key. Um, and there's a lot more that I want to do. It's just at the end of the day, I need to justify to our top management that whatever we invest needs to have a commercial and sponsorship and return of investment capability behind. And I think that's key. That's a huge part of my day to day. I think that way as well. And I think that's really important, right? The third one I would say is timing. We often want things to be done ASAP. I feel yeah. like digital is especially... I don't know. Um, digital is really like impacted by this mentality that, okay, we need it for tomorrow when it, it can take six to 12 months to develop in the back end. Yeah. And I feel that's a key part, right? Managing expectations, both internally and externally, and be able to have an honest conversation with our management team, honest conversation with our stakeholders, our clubs, our fans themselves, and say, hey, we know you want this, but I also believe in my philosophy of when doing things here, we need to do things right. If it takes longer than we have to, we'll take the time to do it. But we can't release things because we have to. We need to do it right. And there has to be objectives behind. And timing it's is... Interesting. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that, though, because it feels like probably from your standpoint, it feels like it takes time. But when we see the volume of things you seem to have been doing over the last few years, there's still a lot that has been covered, right? So there's yeah. that element, that nuance, because being on the startup side of things, um, there, there's always that element of organizations not going fast enough or just people feeling like they can just push back things you have done a lot within those years so it's taking time but you're, it still feels like you're operating pretty fast on a day-to-day -day basis yeah and i i appreciate that really i really do i feel like once you work in this ecosystem i think your mind is a bit uh cloudy because you it's hard to take a step back from a fan perspective and really see what we've done i know we've achieved a lot i'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for our, our a management team support or stakeholders or joint venture or partners or clubs um, and the, the people in my team uh, who have done a tremendous work. There's a lot more we want to do. I think we're extremely proactive. And the thing is, like I said, right, we are working with a blank piece of paper in many ways and we have the support uh, and the trust to build new products as we wish, but always listening to our fans. And this is why we really send out a lot of surveys every single uh, trimester to understand where our fans want, what they feel about where we are with the current products and be able to take their feedback really importantly and significantly yep. to be able to make changes. That's the main takeaway that I have. The fourth challenge, I would say, is also the trends, right? The trends of the sports world are continually evolving. Sports is not only sports. Sports is also content, digital tr distribution, and how we experience our product. And those trends are evolving every single day, right? So be able to adapt to those trends and capture those trends, sometimes taking risks as well to be on top of the game and be one of the very first is also a big risk. Um, but we, we need to take those, right? And we need to be able to adapt to those trends. How do we know what the trends are? We need to speak to our fans. Speak to yeah. them, listen to them, really listen to them. Don't say anything, just listen to their feedback take their feedback from different fans and different demographics, Gen Z to our average fan, which is around 40 years old, uh, male and female, to really understand what they want and be able to offer a digital ecosystem that will fit the different fan bases that we have. And that's really the key. But listening is the key here. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles, 
and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Cornet.